Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we gather in this place this morning, God, because we are in need. God, we know that we're hurting, we're needy, we lack direction often in our lives, and we look at the world around us and we can even become discouraged and hopeless at times. But God, we need this time to come back, to gather around your word, to be with your people, to have our hearts re-centered on the gospel, and to be reminded that you are sovereign over all things. And that every time we open up the scriptures, God, you speak with us through them. That you are present. You are present by your spirit. You speak to us through your word. And you have everything that we need, Lord. And so, God, we just bring ourselves to you this morning. We give you our attention. We give you our tithes and offerings. We give you worship. And we ask that you would be glorified and that you would change us, God. And so today, God, as we look at this psalm, we ask that you would give us ears to hear what your spirit wants to say to his church. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, Viktor Frankl was a young Jewish psychologist who in 1942 was arrested by the Nazis along with his siblings and taken into a concentration camp outside of Prague. Eventually, he and his family and his parents along with him were sent to Auschwitz, where his parents would eventually be executed. Years later, Viktor Frankl was released from Auschwitz and sent to a work camp. And eventually, he was freed when the war came to an end. But while Viktor Frankl was a prisoner in Auschwitz, he made it his life's purpose to care for new prisoners who were coming into the camp who had lost all sense of meaning in their life, many of which who were on the verge of suicide. And he poured everything he had into this work. He used all of his skills and training as a psychologist to care for these hurting people who were coming into the camps without meaning and without hope. 
Years later, Viktor Frankl, after being released in 1955, he wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. And this is what he says in that book. He says, there is nothing in the world, I venture to say, that would so effectively help one to survive, even the worst conditions, as the knowledge that there is a meaning in one's life. Life is not primarily a quest for pleasure, as Freud believed, or a quest for power, as Alfred Adler taught, but a quest for meaning. Psalm 8 asks the question, what is man? And the Psalms were used as a hymn book for the people of God. All throughout the Old Testament, even throughout the New Testament, the people of God have always used the Psalms to inspire and inform their worship. And the Psalms would stir up particular hopes and longings in God's people. And what's so unique and special about Psalm 8 is that the hopes and longings that Psalm 8 stirs up aren't just particular to the Israelites or even to Christians, but to every human being. The question of do I matter? Do I have significance? It's a longing for meaning. Now, I live in L.A., which is obviously a big, busy city, but I don't love L.A., to be honest. I'm I'm there because God called me to be there. It's a very difficult place to live and to raise a family and do ministry. And so whenever I get the chance, I love to go out of the city. And so throughout the year, I spend a lot of time in the mountains, and I spend a lot of time in the desert. (laughs) And one of the things that I love most about being in nature is at night, when everything gets dark and there's no more light pollution, and you're sitting around that campfire, just staring up into the black sky and looking at all the stars. We've all had that experience, right? On a clear night, you can even see the Milky Way. And it's humbling. Maybe for some of you, it's standing in front of the massive ocean that just brings this sense of humility over you. Sometimes the grandeur of it all can even cause us to wonder what the psalmist wondered. Do I have significance? Do I matter? The Psalm 8 answers that question in a very deep theological way. The Psalm answers some of the deepest questions of every heart. We're all asking the question, do I matter? And I think the older we get, that question takes different forms. When you're a young adult and you're just kind of starting out in life, maybe those questions revolve around your career goals, what you want to accomplish, what ladders you want to climb, what you want to do in your career, or what kind of relationships you want to have, that special someone, or how many kids you want to have, or what circle of friends you want to surround yourself with. But then when we get into our late 30s and 40s and 50s, those questions begin to change a little bit for us. As advancement in our careers isn't as fast anymore, and we're just kind of set where we're going to be for a long time. Our skills are kind of set now, and maybe people pass over you a little more easy than you're comfortable with. And it forces us to ask the question, is this who I'm going to be? Is this my significance? Do I matter? These are very human questions. 
We want our lives to mean something, don't we? We want our lives to count. We don't want to waste it. We all ask the questions, do I matter? Do I have significance? Where do I find significance? Well, Psalm 8 answers those questions. And so here's our outline for this morning. Here's the outline. Three questions. Where is significance found? Where do we look? Where do we look for significance? What is the basis for believing that we have it? What is the evidence that we have this significance? And then how to respond to it. So first, where is significance found? Where do we look? Psalm 8 describes the very normal experience of going out in nature and experiencing the wonder of it all, right? He's underneath the stars. The psalmist is gazing at the heavens and he's marveling. Maybe you have that experience when you're standing in front of the Grand Canyon or or in Alaska, you see the Auroras Borealis and it's just humbling. And it makes you feel small. And I think it's important to feel that way sometimes. I think it adds perspective to your life and I think it makes you a healthier person. But that feeling of smallness creates a tension in us because we're around our, our family or our coworkers or our friends or people in our church. We feel significant. But when you go out in nature and you stand before such majestic things, you not only feel small, you feel really insignificant. It goes from the feeling of just feeling really small to the feelings of, do I matter? You can't look to the material world to find meaning. You can't look to nature alone to find significance. The consensus among popular culture is you have to look within for those things. You look to things like your work, your accomplishments, your career, your relationships. Here's the problem with looking to your relationships to find meaning. I know that I'm somebody because I have this person in my life. Maybe it's this spouse or this child or this friendship. Listen, no person or group of people can handle the weight of giving you meaning and significance in life. It will crush them. Ernest Becker says in his book, Denial of Death, if your partner or your son or daughter is your all, then any shortcomings in him or her become a threat to you. If they are your everything, if they answer the question of who you are, then any shortcomings in them becomes a threat to you. Nobody can handle the weight of giving you meaning and significance in life. It will crush them or it will crush you or your work. If you make your work and your accomplishments your everything, climbing up the ladder to the next big thing, the next promotion, making more money. Listen, every study shows that you need more than an advancing career and accomplishments to have meaning in your life, to have significance. If your work is your all, then everything else in your life will be in competition with that. And if your career fails, it will crush you. It will steal from you. 
or if your beauty is your all, if your looks are your significance, listen, nothing fades faster than beauty. Just live a little while. Your stuff fades. Your beauty fades. We can't find our meaning. We can't find our significance with what we construct. We can't find it by looking within. And so the psalmist considers how great nature is, and he says, if I look out into the natural world and I can't find meaning there, and I can't find significance by looking within, by what I create and cultivate in my life, how do I answer the question, do I matter? How do I answer this question, what is man? Where do I find it? And the answer to that question is, you must find your meaning You must find your significance not in nature, not from within. It must be received as a divine gift. It has to come from God. It has to be received as a gift. But how do you know that you have it? What is the basis for believing we have it? What's the evidence? How do we know? How can we be sure that we really do have significance and that we matter? Psalm 8 says three things, God's eminence, God's creation, and God's incarnation. First, God's eminence. The Bible teaches that God is both transcendent and eminent. The transcendence of God means that God is completely other than. He's outside of us. He's far away. He's completely separate and other than us. But God's eminence means that God is near, that he is close. And it seems contradictory. And it's probably what caused the psalmist to ask the question, what is man that you are mindful of him? What is man that you care for him? The psalmist brings up in this psalm this seemingly contradictory reality that God transcends him. And yet, Psalm 8 says that God is mindful, that he cares And people usually err on one side or the other in their view of God. Either God is really big, he's far away, he's out there. We don't interact with God at all. He's nowhere near us. Or we make God just like us. He confirms all of our beliefs. He does exactly what we would do. Therefore, God looks a lot like us. But the Bible does this surprising thing. It holds the tension of both a completely transcendent God and a God who is near. Isaiah chapter 40 lays this out perfectly. Verse 12, listen to this. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him counsel? This is complete transcendence, right? But then look at the verse that's right before that. Isaiah 40, verse 11. It says, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. The Bible declares God as ultimately transcendent and fully eminent. 
The Bible doesn't resolve this tension. You have to sit with that. God is both transcendent, but he is near. And if you don't understand it, well, it's God. This is God's intention. He is eminent. He is near. He's close. He cares. He's mindful. He wants a relationship with you. Listen, you may have a boss who doesn't care to remember your name, but there is one who with the span of his hands has spread out the heavens and named every star in the sky, and he knows your name. He's mindful of you. He thinks of you. He cares for you. You may think of yourself as forgettable in this world, but in the mind of him who holds everlasting to everlasting, you will never be forgotten. You will always be cherished. You are significant. That's significance. That's meaning. In the heart and mind of the one who matters most, you stay. You're held. You're loved. And so the first evidence we need to look to is God's nearness, his eminence. The second one, we need to look to God's creation. The psalmist asked the question, what is man? Then in verses five and six, he says, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Is this hyperbole? Is this an exaggeration? Where did, where did he get this? Well, Genesis chapter one. God creates everything. He then says, let us make man in our image. In other words, let's make someone like us. Let's make a creature that is so much dignity and so much value and so much worth because we've put something in our, of ourselves in them. Then he says, let's make these humans to have dominion over the earth. God has given human beings dominion. That's different than dominance. Dominion is the idea of like a gardener. A gardener has dominion over his garden. He is meant to cultivate his garden. And God has made us gardeners of the earth. He's given us dominion over his creation so that we can care for and cultivate this earth that he has created. By virtue of being created in the image of God, it says he puts all things under our feet and we're to care for and rule the world like kings and queens to enjoy it. God has created all things for our joy and for his glory. That feels kind of crazy, doesn't it? Why would God give us dominion over the earth? We're so small. Why would he do that? It feels absurd. But if you think about it, God does a lot of things in creation that are absurd, right? I mean, have you ever seen an elk in the mountains? A screaming mountain horse with swords growing out of its head? It's crazy. Or think about a worm, or a duck-billed platypus. See, God didn't create all these things just for utility. God made this enormous, 
over-the-top, art-filled universe for our enjoyment and for his glory. Endless galaxies and solar systems that seem to exist for no other reason but to show off how big God is. That's who he is. And he has put all things under our feet. If that's true, then anything that we can create or construct as meaning and significance in this world is only superficial in comparison to the fact that we've been created in the image of God. It doesn't always feel like things are under our feet, does it? Sometimes it feel, feels like we're under its heel. We live in a world where there is cancer and disease and natural disasters. The world has fallen. You don't need a theology degree to know that. You just need to live for a little while. Is Psalm 8 being naive or simplistic when it says all things are under our feet? No. It's longing. It's hoping. It's desiring. We desire this too, don't we? We want to live and not die, right? Right? We want to be free from sickness. We want to be free from the corruption of the world, free from living under the threat of our failing bodies. We long to live as kings and queens, not as subjects. We long for this. It's in our soul. God has put eternity in our hearts. See, these desires only exist because there is something that is meant to satisfy those desires. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity famously says, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Psalm 8 says mankind was made for a world where we live as kings and queens under the reign and rule of Jesus. And all creation is under our feet to live without fear and with joy. But man is in exile from home and we long to be brought back. Who is going to bring us home? That's what Psalm 8 asks. Who is going to bring us home? If you want to know that, if you want to know that you matter, that you have significance, you need to look to God's eminence, to God's creation, and lastly, you need to look to God's incarnation. God became a man. God became a man to rescue us and to bring us back. In Hebrews chapter 2, when it quotes Psalm 8, saying, you have made him a little lower than the angels. The author of Hebrews is saying, that's true of man. That's true of humanity. But that's also true of Jesus. For a little while, he was made lower than the angels. He became fully human. He became like us in every way, yet without sin. That's the incarnation, that God became a man. He set aside so many of his divine privileges and attributes. He, he emptied himself, Philippians chapter 2 tells us, taking on the form of a servant, 
and entering into the brokenness of this world that he might bring us home. It's incredible. Martin Luther once famously said, you have a baby who is nursing at the breast of his mother while at the same time he holds the universe together with his hands. <clears throat> Crazy. Complete transcendence and complete eminence at the same time and in the same person. Another place I want to mention in the New Testament where Psalm 8 is mentioned is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Jesus is declared in 1 Corinthians 15 as not only fully man, but also as the true man, the true and better Adam. Adam was in the garden of paradise and he sinned. And his sin exiled him from the garden and us with him. But Jesus, the better Adam, was in paradise with the Father and all of the angels, and he left paradise. He wasn't exiled from paradise. He left willingly to a far country to bring us back home. At the resurrection of Christ, it says in 1 Corinthians 15, that all things were put under his feet. All things, death and the curse, they were defeated by this man, Jesus Christ, and all things are put under his feet. And after the resurrection, Jesus experienced what we're ultimately meant to experience. All things put under our feet. See, when Christ returns to make all things new and bring about his new creation, we are going to experience all these promises. All of these promises are going to come to fruition when Jesus returns to earth, where heaven and earth come together completely. And he begins new creation, which actually began at his resurrection. Everything bad, everything evil will be made undone. Everything that has been put under Christ's feet will then be put under ours. And listen, all the meaning of our lives that is hidden from us right now will be revealed in perfect clarity. I want you to turn in your Bibles quickly to Revelation chapter 5. It'll be up on the screen as well. Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. That's us, you guys. We are the bride. In verse 3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, 
The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Listen. Those of you who are hurting today, those of you who are suffering, we've all suffered. Some of us to far greater degrees than others. But whatever you've experienced in this life, whatever pain, whatever sorrow, whatever sadness, whatever struggle, Revelation chapter 21 tells us that one day we are going to see Jesus and we are going to tell him our story. And he's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. And then he's going to tell our story back to us and explain every twist and every turn and everything that wasn't clear and show us how he was using it all for his glory and for our good. Even when someone meant evil against us, even when the brokenness of this world hurt us, even when we failed and made a mess of things, he is, was with us in it all. Listen, only Jesus can have that conversation with us. In fact, I think we often do each other a disservice when we try to do that for Jesus. When people are suffering and they come to you and, and you, you know, sometimes people can be prone to give platitudes and answers for the reason people are suffering. Sometimes it's better just to pray. Only Jesus can have that conversation with us. Let God be his own interpreter of the stories of our life. God is going to make it all clear one day. This is our hope. This is the gospel. All of our longings for coming home, all of our longings for meaning and significance in this life are fulfilled in Jesus Christ becoming a man to save us. That is significance. That is meaning. And it's a gift. And it's a gift that overshadows any meaning or significance that you or I could create or construct for our lives. How do we respond to that? What's our posture in this? How do we get it? Well, first, you have to receive it. It's a gift. You don't strive for gifts. You don't grasp for gifts. You don't earn gifts. You don't even deserve gifts most of the time. You have to receive it. It's yours by grace. It's yours because God has chosen to love you. And he has given you freely everything. You have to receive it by faith. By simply trusting that he is who he says he is.
and that he has done what he says he has done and accomplished for you. And if it feels too excessive, if it feels too good to be true, well, God is an excessive giver. You have to receive it as a gift. That's number one. You just have to receive it by faith. That's our response. And then secondly, we respond with worship. The Psalms, like Psalm 8, were originally meant to be sang back to God. These Psalms were not only something that they used to inform their minds of who God is, but the Psalms were meant to shape our hearts in worship. We worship the God who has given us everything. We worship the one who has given our lives meaning and significance. He is mindful of you. He cares for you. He sees you. He delights in you. And he is worthy of your worship. And so I want us now to transition into a time of response. Let's come into this time of response with a posture of receiving from God. Maybe some of you have been looking in other things to find meaning and significance. And if you've lived long enough, you've certainly had your heart broken by doing that. God wants you to know today that you matter, that he sees you, that you are significant. Not because of your performance as a Christian, not because of anything that you've accomplished, not because of any sacrifices that you've made for him, simply because he has chosen to love you and he delights in you. You are his son. You are his daughter. The God of the universe looks upon you and delights in you. And so if there's things this morning that you need to lay at Jesus' feet, ways that you've been looking to add weight and significance and meaning to your life apart from him, he's not necessarily calling you to give those things up. But for the things that have become an idol in our heart, he's calling us to cast those things at his feet, to put all of these things in their proper perspective. You're going to be much better in your relationships when you find your significance in God alone. You're going to be a much better father, a much better mother, a much better coworker when you don't find your meaning and significance in the things that you do, but what Christ has done for you. And so let's receive that this morning with faith and with a posture of worship. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled as we sit before your word this morning. God, our hearts identify so deeply with the psalmist who is standing out in nature, humbled by the majesty of it all, the bigness of it all, and plagued by the question, what is man? That you are mindful of him. What is man that you care for? God, we thank you that you didn't leave the psalmist hanging. but that you reminded him 
that the one who has created him has given him all the meaning and significance that he could ever need. And God, I pray that you would remind us this morning of that as well. It's easy for us to forget that. It's easy for us to dismiss it or just become so familiar with it. And we begin to compare ourselves to other people. And we find ourselves, we find ourselves hurting God. We find ourselves empty. God, I pray this morning that you would free us from any idol, from any thing or person in our life that is bearing a weight that it's not meant to bear. God, I pray that we would cast those things at your feet, that we would turn our eyes upward to heaven with our hands open, believing that you are present, that you are here by your spirit, and that we matter to you. You know us by name. You're mindful, you care. We thank you for sending your son who has given us all things freely by giving everything. And so Lord, we worship you now in response. Would you be pleased with our worship, God? Would you meet us in a spirit of desperation, in a spirit of prayer, and fill us with hope and longing and meaning and significance as we leave this place this morning, God. We need an encounter with you. So Holy Spirit, come now. Minister to your people. In Jesus' name. Amen.